Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to World Weekly from the Financial Times. I'm Gideon Rachman. Today we're looking at Cuba after the death of Fidel Castro. What now? Joining me on the line are John Paul Rathbone, our Latin America editor, and on the line from Washington, D.C., our diplomatic correspondent, Jeff Dyer. John Paul, first. I mean, obviously, it is, as they always say, the end of an era, and what an era, stretching back to the late 1950s and many decades. Do you feel, though, that this is a decisive turning point for Cuba, or are the Castros basically still in charge? Well, there were three Castro brothers originally. There was Ramon, the eldest, who was a farmer, who died this year. There was Fidel, the middle, who also died this year. And Raul, the youngest. So just for actuarial reasons, I think Cuba is entering a paradigmatic and transcendental change, if only for biological reasons. And Raul is 85 now, which is older than Fidel was when he retired from power because of a near-fatal illness in 2006. So if only because of biological reasons, yes, Cuba is poised on a brink of change. And I think the removal, I mean, the death of such an important symbol and icon as Fidel inevitably changes the feelings and the way Cubans feel about the revolution and also the way that other people feel about the revolution. Even though Fidel's death has been anticipated for such a long time, I still think it is significant. Do you think this, the system, though, will outlast the Castros? There's a definitely a strong chance of that. And in fact, I think that's probably the most likely thing to happen. And now that Fidel has gone, I think Cuba will be seen more clearly as a place where, of a, where there's a state-controlled economy and where the military, sort of in a Russian style, occupy the commanding heights of the economy, which in this case is tourism. Things haven't been totally static, though, have they? I mean, Cuba went through an incredibly rough period economically after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Since then, there's been some opening up and the beginnings of a rapprochement with the United States. So what's the direction of travel of the country up until the death of Castro? And is that likely to continue? So the path of travel was uh, sort of Vietnamese style, not quite Chinese style, Vietnamese style, where you have some liberalization of small services, small businesses. You can own a phone in Cuba, for example, but you can't own a phone company. And the hope is now that after hunkering down a bit, because that's how the Cubans usually respond to moments of weakness and uncertainty, and you have to throw Trump into that mix, after hunkering down for a bit, there'll be a bit more Vietnamese-style reforms and slow building pressure for a multi-party democracy. But this all takes time. This will all take time and nothing will happen overnight. You mentioned Trump there. So let me bring in Jeff Dyer in Washington, D.C. I mean, Jeff, we'd seen President Obama moving towards rapprochement with Cuba. Do you think that's likely to be reversed by Donald Trump? Well, it's one, you know, one of these big questions about the Trump administration, and we just don't know what kind of policy he's going to promote. I mean, during the Republican primaries, he was actually the, the one of the 17 who was relatively open to the idea of normalizing relations with Cuba. I mean, he said, you know, you've had 50 years of this isolation. It hasn't worked. He did promise that he would personally do a better deal. But he was the one who said, you know, we have to do something different. But actually, something interesting happened in the last days of the campaign. As he thought he might be losing Florida, he started to really court the, the Miami Cuban-American vote. He went to the 
give a speech to the veterans of the Bay of Pigs who are kind of ground zero of the anti-Castro groups in Miami and really changed his tone and it was much tougher about the opening to Cuba. And as you've seen from his one of the tweets, at least, he has threatened to tear up the deal. So, you know, we just don't know what kind of approach he will do. And really, it begs a kind of broader question about just what sort of president is Donald Trump going to be, who actually is Donald Trump, and we just don't know. I mean, he says that he's going to be a sort of businessman president. And if that is the case, then one can imagine him trying to you know, strike a, a different deal with Cuba, absolutely not closing down uh, relations with the country, but trying to get more out of them, trying to negotiate, trying to create leverage, and trying to strike a better bargain. But he also has also surrounded himself with some fairly hardline people, particularly in his foreign policy team. He, he did seek the support of you know some of the more hardline Miami Cubans, and maybe he will just listen to them. We just don't know at this stage, seven weeks ago before he takes over, we have very little idea about what his real instincts and what his approach will be. And the Cuba policy is just another one on the list of things we just don't know. And how powerful is the Cuban-American lobby still? I mean, you mentioned the veterans of the Bay of Pigs. They must be getting on a bit. In broad terms, they're becoming much less powerful. Opinion polls show that a majority of Cuban-Americans actually support the opening that the Obama administration has done to Cuba. The opinion polls have also showed that Hillary Clinton won a slight majority of Cuban-Americans in the country in the election over Donald Trump, although there's a much narrower vote in Latino votes in, in total where she won a much bigger majority. But, you know, there are a couple of influential senators who are Cuban-Americans, Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz, who are very much opposed to the opening to Cuba. And it partly became a question of whether he wants to, to pick a fight with them over this issue. I mean, it might, in his mind, it could be an issue about priorities. He, he is going to have a series of fights with Senate Republicans over a bunch of issues, maybe over Russia, maybe over Obamacare, maybe over infrastructure. And so maybe you could see the White House thinking, do we really want to go to the mat over Cuba with Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio? Maybe we'll just we'll give them a bone there and we'll, we'll try and get something on another issue that he sees as more important to him. So again, we just have no real sense how he's going to think about these things. But I suppose the thing is that Obama has now put this rapprochement with Cuba in place. So would it require proactive action from Trump to actually change things? Not really, no, because most of the things that President Obama had done have been executive orders. Indeed, the bulk of the legislation that underpins the embargo is still in place, and that was the one frustration of the administration that wasn't able to get any momentum to get Congress to change that. And now that you have a President Trump and Republicans controlling both houses of Congress, there's very little chance that will happen. So from a purely technical point of view, he could reverse most of the things that President Obama has done by simply the stroke of the pen if he wanted to. And last question, how important do you think Latin America and Cuba in the middle of it is still to Americans' view of the world? Because I guess during the Cold War, it was very much a theatre of the Cold War, Cuba in particular. I get the feeling now that's over and that Russia's less of a kind of looming global presence, that the Americans just spend less time thinking about Latin America than they once did and more time thinking about Asia Pacific and maybe Russia and the Middle East. That's certainly been the, the case for the last 30 years. It's been one of benign neglect of Latin America where American elites have thought very little about it. But actually, you've seen the last couple of years and this election campaign, there's two very different views coming out. I mean, there is an emerging elite view which David Petraeus, for instance, has been quite involved in, is about seeing the Americas, and particularly Mexico and Central America, much more as a, an economic terms, about trying to do more trade, about trying to integrate uh, bits of Latin America into the with Canada and the U.S. as an economic block, as an energy block, and thinking about it much more in terms of economic issues and seeing 
you know, the immediate neighborhood as being a core priority of American foreign policy. Obviously, Donald Trump has completely flipped that and has presented Latin America as a priority, but in negative terms, in terms of immigration, in terms of trying to build a wall and cut down flows of illegal immigrants. So you, it's another of these issues where you know, Donald Trump is very much on the opposite side of things from the foreign policy elite to our many of whom will be staffing his administration, who, who actually want to do more in Latin America, and Donald Trump wants to do a lot less, it seems. So, John Paul, we talked about the American angle, but obviously Cuba played a huge role in the worldview, if you like, of the global left, and we saw that in some of the tributes paid to Castro after he died. But with Castro gone, with Venezuela really in uh, disarray, what's the state of the Latin American left? The Latin American left, as Dilma Rousseff told the Financial Times last week, is like a tide. And at the moment, the tide is out. There's been a swing away from the left and populism in Latin America, especially over the past few years. Dilma Rousseff is out in Brazil. Cristina Fernandez uh, lost the elections in Argentina. The FARC guerrillas in Colombia are laying down their weapons and armed struggle and joining and submitting themselves to the laws of a state that they never even recognized. So it's ironic that even as the North, the US and Western Europe are moving towards nationalism and populism, Latin America, which has long been a kind of crucible of international leftist movements, is turning away from that for now. And all the odder, really, given that, as you say, in the North, the whole idea of kind of neoliberalism is under attack. And you'd think that would be fodder to some of the ideas that the Latin American left have put forward over the years. So wh where is Latin America heading ideologically? Is, is there anything distinctive happening? I think at the moment it's sort of an ideological no man's land. It's a continent where the left will never go away because the social needs are so pressing and obvious. But at the same time, there's a painful recognition that the policies that have been used most dramatically in Cuba and most ghastlily in Venezuela just haven't worked. They provided some benefits, but at costs that are just too large to countenance. And finally, let's uh, return to Cuba itself. I mean, for better or worse, because of the outsized international role that Castro played and indeed other figures such as Che Guevara, Cuba's had this enormous international profile well beyond the fact that it's really quite a small island in the Caribbean. Do you think now Cuba will slip back into relative obscurity? During the Cold War, Cuba was a pocket superpower. And I do believe that Cuba has a history of imperialism. I mean, what other country has had three successful military campaigns in Africa in the second half of the 20th century? So, yes, it's quite possible to imagine and realistic to imagine a shrunken role for Cuba in the future. And in a way, that's no bad thing. But will it ever become just another Caribbean island, although it is the same size as England and Wales put together, something like Puerto Rico? I just don't see that happening. OK, on that note, thank you very much indeed to John Paul Rathbone and also to Jeff Dyer. That's it for this week. Until next week, goodbye.